Get ready to rumble. Chilling show unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Greg Roman, the director of the Middle East Forum, and today's topic, something that is not known to a lot of people, terrorists crossing the American southern border. And Greg Roman, welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thanks for having me. Would you tell us a little bit about the Middle East Forum and your work there? Sure. So we've been active in Philadelphia as our base and the rest of the world as our arena for the past 30 years providing insights and analysis on the Middle East, more specifically promoting American interests in that region and defending Western values from Middle Eastern threats. It sounds like very difficult work, frankly, and tell us a little bit about your progress over the years, because I would imagine the American message is at least in some ways a hard sell in the Middle East. Well, you have to really look at every country and its own specific interests as it relates to its either proxy relationship with the United States or its animus towards the United States. So if you look at countries like Saudi Arabia, Israel, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, and Turkey, they're heavily reliant on American arms. They're heavily reliant on American support in international organizations and on trade with our country. In Iran, they use America as a foil to foster domestic discontent back at home and also to blame their problems that are attributable to their own internal mismanagement on what in some countries call the U.S. Big Satan, and then it's a smaller cousin, Israel, Little Satan. But that's just the way in which they have to uh, sort of deflect from the problems that are going on in their own capitals. So I want to tie together the work that you're doing in the Middle East with what's going on at the southern border. And the first thing I want to start with, Greg, is the porosity of the southern border. Again, a lot of people are not following this closely and think that we have a sealed border. I think nothing could be further from the truth. What have you observed? In the macro, there are millions of individuals who pursue a better life in the United States. That runs up with the idea that it contradicts American law. There's millions of legal immigrants to this country that are waiting in line in embassies and capitals around the world, trying to get their fair shake at getting admission to the United States through a legally allocatable visa. But there are millions more who want to skip ahead of the line and spread again to our country, whether it be by way of our airports, our seaports, or more recently, across the southern border with Mexico. But it's not just Central American and South American migrants who try to make their way across the poorest southern border. There are also hundreds of individuals of Middle Eastern descent and ancestry, those who have citizenship from Afghanistan, Sudan, uh, Eritrea, Iran, Turkey, Syria, who somehow make their way to Mexico, either by flying into Mexico City and taking the road up north by car, or even in some cases, there are Venezuelan migrants who are able to spend two or three years in Caracas 
But what they don't tell you is that they originated from Lebanon. They're given Venezuelan passports, and then they try to make their way into the United States. We've actually observed through a report by a fellow of ours, Joseph Humeyer, who's also the director of the Center for Secure and Free Society, that dozens of Hezbollah members received Venezuelan passports, and then they try to make their way to the U.S. And this was actually indicated in the larger scheme of things, not just beyond those who were granted Venezuelan passports, but dozens of individuals on the terrorism watch list were able to make their way through the southern border. Some 71 right now are unaccounted for on American soil, only having the authorities realize that they passed into the country without realizing that they had been on that watch list for, for multiple reasons. Some had tried to use explosives against U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Others were suspected to have ties to terror organizations. And this isn't a new problem. If you go back to the mid-1970s, there were individuals who were involved in the Bangladeshi genocide from a group called Jamaat-e-Islami, which is the Islamist party active in Dakar and Bangladesh, which once upon a time was East Pakistan. And they are still in this country now being investigated by DHS's Human Rights Division, but they haven't been able to find a gumption to deport them yet. So this is a systemic problem. In the macro, it's more about migrants and trade. In the micro, it's more about national security threats to our country. This does not sound like it's happening organically. Do we know who's facilitating this? And is there kind of a master puppeteer in all of this? I think that it is decentralized. I think that if you were to look for those who were planning on bringing these individuals across the border or through our airports or through our refugee admissions programs, you really have to look at each country, which is seeing their citizens leave their homestead and then coming to the United States for the source of the problem. Let's take Afghanistan, for example. The U.S. was in a rush to try to evacuate tens of thousands of Afghanis who had worked with the U.S. government or who had been enemies of the Taliban prior to our country's withdrawal in August of 2021. The problem was is that the screening process that the government had used had a lot of holes in it, which led to a recent hearing which took place in the U.S. House of Representatives back in March, where the Department of Homeland Security Secretary admitted that there were multiple individuals who had participated in attacks against the United States and its army while they were in Afghanistan and had somehow slipped through our screening process to get into this country. If you look a little bit further than that, and you say it's not just Afghanis who had ties to the Taliban or other groups that were able to take advantage of the system. It's the systemic problems which are inherent in the way in which this country does immigration, specifically as it relates to those that are seeking to do harm or who have sought to do harm to the country in the past. When you're going through your process to apply for refugee status or to apply for a work visa, a tourist visa, or maybe even to join the green card lottery, you are not asked about your ideology as it relates to its cross-section with American values. Maybe you're asked if you had membership in the Communist Party or if you had ties to a terror organization, all things that people could easily lie about and say no. And it might be hard to find out about that. But if you were to pose them with a test of, let's say, 50 questions, much like individuals have to take when they're doing their citizenship exam, do you believe in equal rights for men and women? Do you believe that civil law is above religious law? Do you believe in a division of church and state, or in some cases, mosque and state? 
depending on the origin of the person we're talking about, that might be a little bit of an easier way in which to filter people out that have values that are anathema to this country. And even beyond that, we're not allowed to take into account an individual's religious identity or deeper, his religious affiliation. Now, I'm not saying we should discriminate against someone's faith, but if the branch of their faith, let's say a member of ISIS, he could say he's Muslim, but then you ask him, hey, did you ever belong to any uh, mosques that were associated with Daesh? And he said, yes, that's probably somebody you don't want in this country. So on the smaller level, yes, country by country, there are unique situations where people who are seeking to do harm to Americans are able to take advantage of our system in country. But the larger issue is, is, is that the Department of Homeland Security and the government customs immigration writ large has to take into account a more proactive approach of finding out who someone really is rather than just trying to apply a neutral litmus test to everyone, regardless of their origin. Greg, the question is then, why are we not doing that? Are these political reasons? Are we incompetent? What's the story behind that? Well, I mean, I don't know if you saw this Project Veritas story that came out two or three days ago. Yes. Where there was a whistleblower from DHS, specifically the uh, Immigration Division, that had admitted that the country was aware post-admission to the United States of individuals who were affiliated with violent organizations and who had actually partook in attacks against the United States. Yet different departments of the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Labor were issuing work visas to these people, even though we knew they were on the terrorism watch list. On one hand, you have the head of immigration enforcement speaking in an internal conference, according to this Project Veritas video, that she was proud of the massive effort that her agent, this is sort of you know pa- paraphrasing her quote, she was proud of the massive, massive effort by her agency to absorb tens of thousands of refugees, so-called refugees, into the United States. And she didn't make one mention of the downside of that, which was that she let some people slip through her grasp and her responsibility who are currently in this country, who have ties to terror organizations, who are on the FBI's watch list, and they're not doing enough to try to catch them. It is, at the end of the day, a political decision at the level of Congress and the White House to be able to create the law, the body of law necessary to use ideology and affiliation as a way in which to screen people who want to come into this country. Let's be for certain, 99.9% of the people who want to come into the United States are doing so because they're seeking a better way of life. I have no issue with them as long as they follow the legally approved process to immigrate to this country. But the 0.1% that has violent origins, whether they be affiliated with a cartel or a gang, or if they're on the terror watch list, should not be stepping foot on our soil. It seems, Greg, as though the Biden administration is doing this intentionally uh, based on statements that they've made. But were things significantly different during the Trump years? There was a porous border during the Trump years, too. But at least the Trump administration recognized that there was a problem and they sought different policy solutions to try to fix it. They didn't necessarily have the cooperation of Congress after his first years in office when there was a divided House Senate and his presidency. But at least he was cognizant of it. And I think awareness of identifying the problem is the first step. 
But even Trump didn't take the steps necessary, I think, to be able to shut down the border to entry to these dangerous individuals. If they really wanted to have a policy solution that would work, they would redo the entire way in which naturalization immigration is done in this country. Unfortunately, no one has had the political capital or gumption to attempt that yet. Let's talk about the terrorist screening database that we have and if it's being maintained appropriately. And also, uh, what does it mean when someone's designated a terrorist on this list? So there's two types of designations that can come out from the United States. An SDT, a specially designated individual or, uh, or, or a terrorist, or someone who's on a terrorism watch list. If you're on the watch list, you haven't necessarily been convicted of a crime, but the United States has intelligence which would suggest that you have either participated in an attack on an American overseas, you were involved with material support, financing, leadership, perhaps you were part of a religious arm of a terror organization, and you're someone that the U.S. has to look out for. You're not a citizen, and you don't have any special privilege to get into this country because of the intelligence which is building against you. The second list is a list of, let's call it, specially designated individuals that the United States has directly accused of participating in terrorism against the U.S. or our allies. And there's either a bounty on their head for capture or kill from the United States, or they're sanctioned by the U.S. Department of the Treasury or OFAC, which is the Treasury sanctions arm, because of their affiliation or their participation in terror activity. So one is sort of a passive list, which people are added to it, as intelligence comes in on a real-time basis. The other is more concrete, where the U.S. is seeking policy actions against people that it deems dangerous to its national security interests. The Ceiling Show Unleashed podcast. Our guest is Greg Roman from the Middle East Forum, and we continue in a moment. Online at ceilingshow.com. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and, in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at Borderhawknews on Twitter. Get your fix. Shilling Show Unleashed. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues. Our guest, Greg Roman, director of the Middle East Forum, we're discussing terrorists crossing the American southern border. So recently, uh, several Congress people have been speaking up, um, perhaps most notably Chip Roy out of Texas, but several others as well, concerned about a lack of transparency in the process. Is it really difficult for Congress and the public to get this information? It was actually fascinating across two Freedom of Information Act requests, that one being issued by Fox News at the end of last year, and a second, numbers that that Congressman Chip Roy from Texas had asked the Department of Homeland Security to produce, where in the Fox News request, something like 23 individuals were identified as having crossed the border who had ties to terror organizations 
And when Congressman Roy put his request in, that number almost doubled to above 40. And this is only people that were identified by the FOIA request, FOIA being Freedom of Information Act. And any citizen could get information from the government so long as it doesn't meet a classification burden or reveal personal information about someone else. So the fact that DHS can't even keep track of an accurate amount of the numbers of people that they're looking for in this country suggests to me that this is only the tip of the iceberg. According to answers that Secretary Mayorkas gave at that hearing that we had mentioned in the first half of this show, potentially hundreds of dangerous individuals who are in our communities, who are living in Chicago, in Michigan, in Washington, D.C., in Los Angeles, New York, Florida, walking the same streets as us. They are in our communities. Perhaps they, in their mind, have left their dangerous ways behind them, but one will never know until one of these individuals are either caught and deported by the United States or if they decide to, in one way or another, participate in a terrorist act. And I think that's a burden that Americans shouldn't have to accept. We should have zero tolerance for individuals with ties to extremist organizations, especially those that have anti-American interests being in this country. And yet we do seem to tolerate that. Let's talk about some of the terrorist threats, perhaps, that people have not heard about. But are there real threats against the country presently and in the recent past? There are. If you speak in the larger sense of what's going on outside the country, you have threats right now with a rekindled ISIS taking part in attacks against the Taliban in Afghanistan. But they have an international reach. You still have al-Qaeda very much active in northwest Syria, in Idlib province, and we know that individuals from have been making their way through Europe, trying also to get to the United States. But more locally, you have what are called uh, lone wolves, or I would call them known wolves, because most of the people who commit these one-person terror shows, for instance, the attack which took place on the synagogue in Texas earlier in the year, they somehow are picked up by their own countries, but then that intelligence is either shared with the United States and it doesn't filter down to immigration, or in some cases, the U.S. just doesn't have the intelligence sharing relationships with countries to be able to create an early warning system to be able to find out about these folks. I think there's two cases which your listeners should know about. One which took place a few years ago, another one which is a clear and present danger right now to illustrate this problem. When we had the first wave of Iraqi refugees leaving the capital of its country, Baghdad, back in 2011-2012, it was sort of foreshadowing what would happen 10 years later with Afghanistan. There was a case where two Iraqi explosive makers made their way to resettle in the United States in Kentucky. And only after they came into the country did the U.S. pick up on the fact that these individuals had been making bombs which were targeting American troops with IEDs in Iraq. They were arrested on terrorism charges and eventually put in jail. They should have never made it to American soil. Fast forward 10 years, you now have active threats against former Trump administration officials like former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Special Envoy for Iran Brian Hook, and other members that were responsible for the Iran sanctions team under Trump, which are under active threat by Iran and its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of assassination. It's even gotten to the point where these former officials have been provided with bodyguards from U.S. Protective Services 
because of the fact that the Iranians, while they're negotiating with the Biden administration in Switzerland and Vienna over its nuclear program, have pursued assassination plots against senior former American officials. While this may not be your garden variety terrorism of shooting attacks or attempts to blow up shopping centers, the fact that a state actor is trying to send its agents into this country, duping our immigration services, and that former officials have to worry about watching behind their back, just shows to me that this administration is not taking seriously active efforts to mitigate these threats they're only taking into consideration passive policy efforts as if though they're waiting for something to happen. We've heard in past years about sleeper cells of terrorists across the United States in various areas, even places where training was going on here in Virginia and rural areas. We don't hear so much about that anymore, but are the sleeper cells still active and could they be called into service as people fear? If we um, can surmise that Attacks which have taken place against this country in the past were done by sleeper cells, 9-11 being the most uh, infamous of all of these plots. Looking at the Lackawanna 6, those active in the Boston terror group, those uh, that were wrapped up in the Millennium bombing attempt 22 years ago, right on the eve of the turn of the century. I think that it would be safe to say that there are active terror plots with individuals in this country who are either in the early stages or may have attempted to be in the early stages of trying to carry out attacks against this country here at home or overseas. I have to tell you, on the other hand, the FBI, they do a pretty good job of disrupting these plots before they come to the point of execution. Our national security authorities are pretty darn good at their job. If somebody were to slip through I wouldn't necessarily point the finger at the FBI. I look at the agency that let them here in the first place and turn our attention back to DHS. We've got a lot of people who are concerned about the surveillance state. And is there an appropriate balance right now for the protections of American citizens and their constitutional rights versus the state surveilling potential bad actors? I think that when it comes to the mix of civil liberties and our constitutional protections versus the national security apparatus, which is meant to safeguard our ability to enjoy those civil liberties really depends on the situation. If you have an active threat by, let's say, individual emanating from the Middle East in their 30s, and they have a black mustache and brown hair and a freckle on the left side of their face, I would expect that everybody who fits that description is going to be profiled more than a 90-year-old grandmother who has hip replacement and goes around in a wheelchair, okay? So the first thing is you can't let the profiling process be politicized. When you have these stories of six-year-old children being strip searched in the airport security line because the profiling was meant to be applied equally, usually intelligence authorities should take into account a little bit more of a deeper level of analysis and only go after the threats that meet the profile of someone who they picked up intelligence on. But when it comes to electronic surveillance, when it comes to the use of advanced means like cell phone interception and other items by our national security authorities, I think that the greater power that they have to surveil, the greater a need exists for an independent ombudsman, which currently, by the way, does not exist with the FISA courts. The FISA courts are the U.S. courts that authorize warrants against American citizens who may be suspected of being involved in either espionage or terrorist activity. You have to be able to have an independent party 
which is acting as an arbiter or as an, an advocate for those who don't have representation when these warrant decisions are made. But I don't think that you should have anything to worry about in terms of government surveillance if they had that independent capacity, so long as it wasn't being abused and so long as you're not engaging in any violent activity yourself. We talked about the counterterrorism apparatus, as they call it. Has it been significantly updated since 9-11, where certainly and appropriately there were a lot of changes implemented? If you look at the way in which the uh, Department of Homeland Security was formed under its first secretary, Tom Ridge, at the end of 2001 and the beginning of 2002, it's really gone through two massive evolutions. The first was the creation of the National Counterterrorism Center, the NCTC, which sits under the National Security Council, and acts as an organizing agency for the 16 different U.S. intelligence agencies that are active in counterterrorism efforts. And the next great reform that took place was the creation of the Department of Intelligence, or, or the National Intelligence Bureau, which superseded the authority of the CIA and created a director of intelligence, which is a cabinet-level position. Those two items have led to a huge bureaucracy in terms of the way in which government employees tried to take a Swiss cheese approach to counterterrorism and then to refine it. So I think what has to be done is, is that the efforts to use contractors to plug the holes of this huge apparatus should be focused on bringing in more career counterterrorism professionals who can make a decent wage, but at the same time ensuring that the most advanced technologies are adopted by these agencies rather than having these huge contract processes, which end up leaving a situation where DHS or DNI might end up like the IRS, where they have computer systems which were meant for the year 2000, but now it's 2022 and they don't have the accurate tech that they have to be able to track the most current challenges. So at the top level, policy decision-making is slow, but in the field, we've got some of the best agents in the world. Finally, Greg, if someone were to put you in charge of policy here, what are the top two or three mitigation steps that we should take immediately? The first is, is I would increase our intelligence sharing partnerships with the countries and, and their domestic intelligence agencies where we find the most amount of transition for terrorist suspects coming to this country. I would improve the security that we have at the southern border. More importantly, I would implement ideological questioning as a way in which we vet individuals coming into this country. Greg, if people want to get more information on your work at the Middle East Forum, how could they do so? So people can read articles that come out daily on our website at meforum.org. We're also very active in our social media on Facebook and Twitter at meforum. Greg Roman is the director of the Middle East Forum. And thank you so much for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thanks for having me. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time. <laughs>